It's, it is Father's Day, and I am so thankful that for the, for, to be a father. I have three beautiful children that God has blessed me with. I have many spiritual children that God has blessed me with over the years, and I am thankful for that, and I want to wish you a happy Father's Day. We do have something for you as you leave today, just to, just to say, just to honor you as a father. And so I thought, what better topic to talk on and preach on than the heart of the father? And so I'm going to share with you just for a few minutes, um, as long as my voice allows me to, uh, just some thoughts and some ideas that God has put on my heart. And so I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this before or even remembered this, and maybe you do, maybe you don't, but in the 1980s, there was this pig craze. Maybe you remember seeing it on the news if you were a news person or a newspaper person, but there was this pig craze in the 1980s, and you might think, what the heck is a pig craze? Well, there was thousands of people shelling out thousands of dollars to own one of these exotic house pets that came from Vietnam, and they were supposed to be these pigs that stayed small, that were super smart, and you could train them to do all kinds of cool things, and they were like, there's going to be this novelty pet. They were half right. The pigs were really smart. They could be trained to sit. They, could, they were trained to use a litter box. They were trained in all kinds of ways. It's kind of cool, right, have a pig? But the problem was they grew to be 180 pounds. 180-pound pig in your house, not a pet. Nope, definitely not a pet. And so we had this, we had this story that was floating around, and all of a sudden... These 180-pound pigs, because of their environment being con con constricted in their environment, became aggressive. So now we have all these people who had this novelty of a pig that said, I don't want this pig. Hundreds and hundreds of pigs that people were like, I just don't want this pig. You can't just, it's not like a cat, just let the cat run away. You know, it's not like a dog or you take it to a shelter. It's a pig. It's 180 pounds of food. So trying to figure out what to do with this, one gentleman named Dale Riffle, he decided he was going to come to the rescue. He had one of these pigs. He fell in love with it. He named it Rufus. His never learned how to use a litter box. It developed a craving for carpets and wallpaper and drywall. But what Riffle did is he sold his suburban home. He moved with Rufus to a farm in West Virginia and he started taking in all these unwanted pigs. People could come and just drop off their un unwanted pig. And before long, here's a guy literally living in a hog heaven. He had 180 pigs on his farm. And he did not raise them to be eaten because this breed of pig actually was more fat than anything else. So there's nothing really good to eat off of this breed of pig. But this gentleman told a reporter, he said, I think we're all put on here for some reason, and these pigs were my reason. How could anybody in their right mind love these pigs? And so I share that story, and it sounds like it has no relevance, but I, I honestly believe that oftentimes in our lives, we have the same sentiment and the same thought about ourselves. When we look at our lives and we look at the mistakes we've made, the choices we made, maybe it was a choice or mistake you made this morning or this week. Maybe it was something that's been weighing on you for months or years. But there are choices and decisions in our lives that we've made that we look at God and say, how could you possibly love a pig like me? Or to steal words from a good friend of mine, how could you possibly love a low-down, dirty dog like me? 
a worthless person. We, we develop this self-worth based on the actions that we do. I, just, I was just having this conversation with my 13-year-old son. He's got an attitude today because we lost the game this morning. I, I had the opportunity to be on the baseball field with him this morning on a Father's Day tournament. As, as most of you know, I'm a passionate about baseball. I coached my son's team, and we were on the field on a Father's Day tournament, and we had a 4-2 to two lead, and then they tied the game, and we ended up losing the game 5-4. to four. And he had a little attitude because we lost. He hates to lose. I don't know where he gets that from. But he has this attitude. And, and I get the attitude because I, I hate to lose. And I'm competitive. And I just tell you, I don't lose. And if I lose a game, it's because I haven't figured out how to win that one yet. That's pretty much how I interpret that. But he, which means he gets it from me. But his attitude towards it is because he finds so much of his identity in how well he performs. And he actually, on his own as a 13-year-old kid, tried to make a call at the end of the game. Near the end of the game. That I said, no, we're not going to do that. Turns out it would have been the right decision that he was going to make. So he had an attitude again towards me. Because he's like, we could have done that. We could have got that guy. And I, and, I, and I get it. And I tried to rationalize and explain to him the whole coaching thing. And that's not. It was that moment of performance that failed. And that's what he's hinging his attitude on. Now he's 13. He's going to figure it out. He's going to get over it. And that's the way that works. But in life, that's what we do. We have this moment of failure. We have this moment of struggle. This moment of difficulty. This moment of poor choice or poor decision. And then we hinge our faith on that. We hinge our journey with God, with God on that. We sometimes even choose, eh, I'm not going to go on this journey with God. My son tried to make the same decision. It turned out that the coach that was bringing him home, because I just, as soon as the game was over, I gave a three-minute encouragement speech, and I booked it home so I could get cleaned up and get here. And my good friend Jim Powell brought him, to, brought him home, brought the gear home, and brought him home, and, I, and it was just as I was leaving. I was like, oh, perfect timing. You can hop in with me. He's like, no, nah, I'm good. I was like, imagine there's a chance that you're not going to church with me, right? He was so busted up that he didn't even want to come to church. And so that's, that's often the way we look at things. We look at ourselves almost similarly the way this guy, the, these, these guy was looking at these pigs. After all, how can anybody ever love a pig like that? And that's how we look at ourselves. So this morning, I'm going to talk to you for a few minutes and tell you about the heart of our father. Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to talk to you about being a father. Okay, there's, there's all kinds of good advice about being a father. There's some really good fathers in this place you can model after. I can give you some resources about being a good father. But what I'm going to talk to you about this morning is the heart of the father and what that looks like. And so and I'll tell you something about that that's even more amazing. There's this an infinite and perfectly holy, majestic and awesome, powerful in all of his ways, unbelievably creative, unbelievably passionate, and he is passionately in love with, yes, you and me. That is the source of all his passion, not his, the mountains that are beautiful. I, I, I saw some beautiful sunrises and sunsets while in Haiti. He's not even passionate about those things. He's not passionate about the trees or the beautiful flowers that you see. He's passionate about you and me. That's the heart of the Father, his passion about us and for us. And it's God that loves us so much that he wants to, wanted to adopt us into his family, which is why we have the greatest moment in human history was the moment that Christ 
suffered and died on the cross, breathed his last breath because it was that death and that sacrifice which guaranteed you and I an opportunity to be in relationship with the Father. And then his subsequent resurrection and the fact that he is alive today means that we can continue to have victory and continue to live with with God the Father in our life every day. That's how much he loved us. He wanted to adopt. That's why adoption in the world, whether it's in the States or in a foreign nation, that's why the adoption process is so close to the heart of the Father. Because you're taking on children that are not yours. And say, I'm going to love them. See, matter of fact, the legal adoption in the United States is almost the exactly, is exactly the same as adoption in Scripture. So when we were adopted into the family of God, we were brought in there as if we are God's chosen. The Bible says we are grafted in with the Jews. The Jews were the chosen generation, the chosen people of God. And the Gentiles were grafted into that chosen nature. And we then inherited every right that the Jew had in that moment. Same as if you adopt a child in this nation, now they inherit every right that you have as a father to a, ch- uh, to a son or a, do- a mother to a son or what, to a daughter. They have all the same rights as your biological children as it relates to you. That's the decision you made. That's the decision God made when he adopted us. And so the Bible never teaches that, that everybody comes, becomes a child of God automatically. See, we think, we think that every single person is a child of God automatically. And while we are God's children in creation, there's a, there's a reciprocating process that suggests that I'm a child of God. I give him that place to be my father. It's not like, like my son, he doesn't have an opportun- option. I'm his dad. My daughter, I, I'm, I'm their father. That's it. You don't like this one? Okay, sorry, you don't get another one. It's not how that process works. I can't trade my kids in. They can't trade in their dad. And so that's not how that process works. Same thing with, the children, with us as the children of God. We don't get to trade that in and say, okay, well, I don't like this God and how it's working. Can I find another? You can try. But then there's no reciprocating process of you being a child of God. So today I'm going to focus on a few distinct points of this heart of the Father as it relates to the grace that he has towards us. I'm going to take as many drinks of water as I can because you can hear my throat. It's straining a little bit. So we're going to read out of Psalm chapter 103, verses 8 through 18. That's where we're going to be for the rest of our time. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 18. And my hope and my prayer is that this rests in your spirit to the point that you realize what the heart of the Father is towards you. So here's what the Bible says. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as east is from the west. Verse 13, the Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. Our days on earth are like grass, like wildflowers. We bloom and die. The wind blows and we are gone, as though we had never been here. 
Verse 17, but the love of the Lord remains forever with those who fear him. His salvation extends to the children's children of those who are faithful to his covenant. This is a powerful view of the heart of the Father towards us. When it comes to loving sinful people, God's got this extremely long fuse, this amazing short memory, thick skin, and a huge heart. It's the same thing. I'm going to relate a few things to baseball and these kids because that's what's been fresh for the last four days same thing I teach my kids on the baseball field, and I'll, 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 I'll teach to you. In life, just like on the baseball field, you have to have this thing called a short memory. Not no memory. I got no memory sometimes. I forget things a lot, but a short memory to suggest that I'm not going to sit and, and, and wallow in the mistake that I made. I'm going to repent I'm going to seek forgiveness. I'm going to ask God to get me back on the path that I'm supposed to be on, but I'm not going to continue to beat myself up. I've got a baseball team full of boys, 13-year-old boys. Some of them are a little bit sensitive and soft. Not all of them have this warrior-like attitude. And they make a mistake, and this is what you see. And the guarantee in baseball is if that's the way you act in a mistake, if you're going out on defense, you can guarantee the ball is going to find you. Let me translate that to life. I guarantee that if you wallow in something like that in a mistake, I guarantee the devil finds you. And he tempts you into another mistake. Why? Because you're beat down. Now your defenses are down. You're not standing firm in the, in, in the love that you know that God has for you. And he will find you and he will hurt you even greater than you've been hurt. So there's a few things I want you to learn about the Father today from this scripture that we just read. Number one, and in your notes, the Father is patient. Notice I'm talking about the Father, not fathers, because I'm a father and I'm not a whole lot of patient. Verse eight describes God's patience with us. He says, the Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. That whole slow to get angry piece is a pretty important piece when you're God. Because we do a lot to anger God. Our sin. He hates sin. One of the things that the Bible talks about God hating is sin. He hates sin. So for him to be able to be slow to anger and filled with unfailing love in spite of our sin shows the level of patience he has. I don't know about you. But I'm be a little transparent about my fathering. There are times when I lack patience with my children that they could do something really, really small and I snap out like they just cussed me out or something. And then afterwards, I got to humble myself and I'm like, and it takes me a little while to do so sometimes. You see what I'm saying? And I'm like, man, I, I screwed that up. Yeah, there we go. And so... So the father is patient. When I think about that and I think about my life and how I live my life and the mistakes that I make on a regular basis, the moments that I put my faith and trust in something other than him, are the moments he's slow to anger with me. The moments he's having unfailing love towards me. You know, this is, this is actually, this passage of scripture, verse number eight, is actually 
a quote of something Moses had written almost 500 years earlier. And so many other people recorded these same exact words. But in Exodus 24 is where Moses had it. Moses was on the top of Mount Sinai. He was conferring with God and, and, and the people were having a party. These people were so excited that God had delivered them from bondage in Egypt. And they were expressing their gratitude to God and worshiping an idol. Let's build ourselves a golden idol. Bring your jewelry and let's build this golden idol. And we'll, we'll party and we'll just worship this idol because God had set us free. And on top of that, they were drunk and immoral in this entire process. Yes, being drunk is a sin. Yes, being immoral, immorality is a sin. People don't like to talk about those things anymore. It's like we, we're, cool with, we're cool with lukewarm Christianity. Like, it's okay. I only get drunk once in a while. Okay, you're in sin then. It is, it is what it is. Let's move off of that. So they're partying. And scripture says that when God saw this, he was angry. God actually told Moses, step back. I'm going to give you a little bit of my own living Bible translation. He says, step back. I'm going to nuke these party animals. Now, that's not exactly what the Bible says, but he said, step back, Moses, because I'm about to take out these people. And Moses fell on his face and appealed to God's grace. He appealed to the nature of God's love, being slow to anger and with, filled with unfailing love. And then God agrees with Moses and withholds his righteous wrath. He foregoes punishing them, but he adds, I'm through with them. I won't destroy them, but I will no longer go with you, Moses. You're on your own. And once again, Moses appeals to him. He pleads with God to reconsider. And once again, God amazingly agrees and reconsiders. And he even promises to give Moses a new copy of the Ten Commandments because prior to this, the Ten Commandments had been destroyed. So God takes Moses back on the top of Mount Sinai and before he begins dictating these moral imperatives a second time, Exodus 34 says that God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's the verse quoted by David. See, here's what we think. We think all this stuff is all new and fresh, but David was an Old Testament dude who understood the Old Testament teaching, and he would quote it often. Read through the Psalms. You can read through Psalms and find things that were quoted in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus because they knew the word, and they're remembering who God was. So in this moment, David's remembering who God was. So number one, the father is patient. He's slow to anger. He's filled with unfailing love. Number two, what I, what I, another thing I love about God that I miss as a father is that the father will not linger in anger. The father will not linger in anger. Verse 9 says, he will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. Some of us just get mad and stay mad forever. But the father's not like that. Some of us just constantly accuse us. Matter of fact, we get accused and then we get branded with that same accusing. And so people then are like, you know what? Remember when you did this? And they bring it back up to us. We're automatically accused of it again. It's, it's the nature of humanity. It's comparatively in, in many marriages exists like this. I found this 
thought online. I thought it was kind of, kind of humorous. So a guy complained to his buddy that whenever he argued with his wife, she got historical. His friend said, you mean hysterical, right? He said, no, historical. She dredges up every, every, the past and reminds me of every single time I failed her in the past. We do this as fathers with our children. We do this as people of God with one another. We remember every single failure and then say, I'm going to hold you accountable to every single failure. But God does not accuse or harbor that anger. Matter of fact, he has a short-term memory to the point in Psalm 130, verse 3, the Bible says, Lord, if you kept the record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? Could you imagine that? Think about that for a minute. Think about if God the Father kept the record of all your sins and then wanted to hold you accountable for every one of your sins all the time, both past, present, and future. What kind of life would that be? That's not the father that we have. That's not the father that you're called to be. That's not the believer, the fellow believer that we're called to be. Isaiah 57, 16 says it like this. God says, for I will not fight against you forever. I will not always be angry. If I were, all people would pass away, all souls, all the souls I have made. God's even saying right there, if I was angry with you forever, everybody would be dead. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, I go to God for forgiveness because I've unleashed this torrent of harsh and destructive words on my children, and I, I, I have to repent and ask God for forgiveness and then ask my children to forgive me, and that's a difficult challenge in part. It's the same thing that we, we do that we benefit from God not doing. So you got to understand that the Father is patient. The Father will not linger in anger. Number three, the father does not treat us according to our sin. The father will not treat us according to our sin. Now we start getting into the idea of character and integrity. We all have people in and around our lives that because of the way they act, you treat them a, t a particular way. One of the most famous things Statements that are made constantly by people. Well, that's it. I'm just washing my hands of them. I'm done. It's not biblical. We're never called to wash our hands of anyone. Never. I was having this conversation with a fellow employee at Chick-fil-A, and it was, it was related to parenting. And we were talking about the idea of violence and standing up to a bully and she tried to tell me that it was okay for her son to punch a kid in the face because he took his cupcake. I was like, you're seriously, I told her flat out, you're seriously, this was what's wrong with this world today. Because that's never okay. It's like this, I'm holding you accountable for that. So he did it. Got in trouble at school. She had a whole to do with the school. Thinking the school's all wrong. The very next day, they gave him grace the very next day. The kid sat two tables away and he went and pushed him off the bench for no reason. And his response, well, he stole my cupcake yesterday. I was making sure he wasn't going to take it today. He was accused and held account to that accusation and treating him accordingly based on one thing that he had done. It's what we do. We do it to our children, we do it to one another, yet we serve a father. There's no record of him ever doing that. 
I mean, if God punished us every time, look at verse 10 says, he does not punish us for all of our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. The Bible's very clear. The wages of sin is what? Death. That's what, that's what's due. If I'm going to pay for something, I got to take my wallet out, use one of these cards, use some cash. I don't have any cash, but use one of these, use some form of money to purchase it. The way that I pay for my sin is in death. That's what I deserve for my sin is death. And so God says, I'm not going to punish us for all of our sins. Now, will you have to deal with consequences from your mistakes and your sin? Oh, yeah. Will some of them be harsh? Oh, yeah. Bottom line, it is what it is. You break the law, you pay the price. Cheat on your wife, divorce might be the price. Cheat on your husband, divorce might be the price. There are consequences for our sin. But that's not, God doesn't say, oh, well, that's it. You cheated, you're done. You broke the law, you're done. You murdered, you're done. You robbed, you're done. That's not, that's not the God that we serve. He doesn't hold us to that accountability. He doesn't look at us that way. He has this thick skin and this leniency and this grace. I mean, the Bible says that love covers a multitude of sin. It's his love that covers a multitude of sin. And it's us responding in his love that covers the multitude of sin of this earth that we have with one another. There are a lot of things that God never brings up again because he's chosen just to forgive them. Love covers that sin. You need proof of that? Here's the next point. The Father's love is unfailing. The Father's love is unfailing. Look what verse 11 and 12 say. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. You want to know how God views your sin? He removes it as far as the east is from the, left, the, the west. He loves you so much that even the distance from here to the heavens cannot be measured by his love, by his grace. Now, is that a license to continue sinning? Paul's response was emphatically, absolutely not. Because what does that same scripture say that I read? For his unfailing love towards those who what? Fear him. There's a, little, there's a little caveat in there that we missed. There's this fear of God that you must have if you're going to honor him and reflect him as father. What's fear mean? Do I be, should I be scared of him? No. Should I, be, I should be in awe of God. I should be of the utmost respect for God. But let me help you out. Don't let your neighbor determine what respect for God is. Don't do it. That's where legalism comes in. Oh, well, you do this. That's not respecting God, so you don't fear him. Whew. Dangerous territory. May, it could be right in some instances, but it's dangerous territory. Because that's where legalism sets in. But those who fear God, his unfailing love is towards them. Those who fear God, their sins are forgiven as far as the east is from the west. It's not just somebody who says, oh, I messed that up. God, I'm sorry. And let me go about my business and go keep on doing it or keep being the way that I am and not change anything. But the psalmist tells us that when we ask God to forgive those sins, he removes them as far as the east is from the west. Just a few other points that will help you to understand how serious God is about taking care of your sin. And in Micah chapter 7, verse 19, he said, he will trample it under the foot and throw it into the deepest part of the sea. 
That's what Micah 719 says. He will trample your sin under his foot and throw it into the deepest part of the sea. In Isaiah 38, 17, he says he'll put it behind his back where he cannot see it. In Isaiah 43, 25, he says he will blot it out. In Isaiah 44, 22, he says he'll sweep it away just like the morning mist that gets burned off by the sun. How many of you have witnessed that? The morning dew, the morning mist that sits on the grass that as the sun rises, burns off and becomes dry. That's the way God views your sin. Your sin that's repentant. Jeremiah 31, 34 says that God will refuse to remember it. He'll just block it out of his memory. How big a heart must the heavenly father have to look and view our sin that way? And yet, here's the thing. We are actually asked and required to view it the same way of one another. Now, we want to say, you did me wrong. I'm kicking you to the curb. I ain't answering your call. I ain't talking to you. And usually that becomes, I'm going to be rude to you when I see you. All because they did you wrong or you don't like the choices that they make, or whatever the reason is, God says he's taken all that sin. So let me translate that for you. If you've, got, for, if you've got some issues with some unforgiveness in your life, to be like God, you have to put it behind you so you can't see it. you got to trample it under your feet so it has no, has no bearing. I, and and let, me, let me tell you something. I don't care what it is. I don't care what anybody's done to you. I don't care how horrible or horrendous it is. Yeah, and I want you to think of the worst possible thing one human can do to the next, and it's still supposed to be met with forgiveness. That's what the heart of the Father looks like. Even as God's children, we don't, we don't even take full advantage of his forgiveness. And if you've experienced forgiveness like that, and then you, you know what I'm talking about, because I have. I've experienced forgiveness in places in my life I don't deserve it. I've experienced it at times that I don't deserve it. And because of that, I can stand here and passionately proclaim the Father and His heart turned towards me regardless of my sin and in spite of my choices. But it's because of one thing. It's that caveat I told you about. It's that fear of Him. It is we so often fail to live in that beauty of that forgiveness. You're not, we're not taking full advantage of his forgiveness. We've forgotten that his God has this long fuse and this short-term memory and this super thick th- skin and this huge heart. And probably part of it could be that there was an earthly father in your life that didn't exhibit that kind of love to you. And so now the connection is how I view God is correlated to how I view my father. And if I struggled with this relationship, you're going to struggle with this relationship, I promise you. That's why, that's why I tell people, if you start to get this right, this will get right. And even if it doesn't get reconciled by choice of the other, God will bring you peace because you're doing what's right. That's how that works. So here's the challenge to you today. To be an earthly father, to be an earthly mother who is characterized by these traits. Long fuse, short memory, thick skin, big heart towards not only your children, 
but echo that same thing to one another in the body of Christ and outside of the body of Christ. One more point I want to make today as I start to wrap up this message. I'm going to start to land the plane. Notice when the air, when I got some experience in this now. They come on the air and say, hey, we're beginning to begin our descent. And they say, we'll touch ground in about 30 minutes. It's good Pentecostal preaching right there. We're going to begin our descent. We'll touch down in about 30 minutes. We won't be 30 minutes. I'm just playing with y'all. The last point I want to make is found in verses 13 through 16. The Father is a compassionate Father. The Bible says the Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. There's that caveat again. He's tender and compassionate to those who fear him. People want to ask the most ridiculous question, well, why do all these bad things happen? If there was a God, then none of these bad things would happen. Well, that's actually not true for two reasons. There's sin in the world. The fallen condition of the sin of this world is number one. Number two, it's a whole bunch of people that don't fear God. There's no respect for God. There's no desire to know God. They have challenges and struggles in life. So he goes on to say, for he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. Our days on earth are like grass, like wildfires. We bloom and die. The wind blows and we are gone as though we had never been here. His compassion towards you. He's tender. He's compassionate. He knows how weak we are. Oftentimes, you'll hear people say two things. You hear them say, God will never give you what you can't handle. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Please do not ever believe anybody who says that. And if you say it, stop. Because life is not able to be handled at all. And it's the way it exists. With God, everything becomes possible. With God, you can walk through the journey. With God, you can withstand anything. But on your own, never. It's not, it's not biblical. It's a, it's, a, it's a wrong twist on a whole scripture that has nothing to do with that. The other thing that people will say is that God let this happen to me. God won't allow anything to happen to you that you can't handle. And then on the flip side of that, God let this happen to me. And the reality is we don't see it, but even in what we go through, God's protecting us in it. As a believer, you've got to know God is protecting me in what I'm going through. Even though I may not be able to see it or feel it or sense it, he's protecting me in what I'm going through because it could be worse. You see this, the Bible describes this, the frailty of, of us and, 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 and neither, neither of these pictures is very flattering scripture says that we're like dust the second picture is, uh, is 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 grass and flowers that temporarily flourish and then the wind comes along and it's gone this is the way God's describing us David is describing how frail we are and how short our lives are we're not as invincible as sometimes we think we are I know when I was a young man I was 10 foot tall and bulletproof. I could do anything and not be harmed by anything. 
as a much older man, everything that I thought I couldn't be harmed with then is harming me today. I, I limped off the baseball field a second. So I was like, what, you okay? I was like, yeah, I'm just old. Got a little hip thing going on here. It's like, well, don't fall down and break it. But the reality is that that's the way we think. Isaiah 42 verse 3 says, He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. He will bring justice to all who have been wronged. There are examples of scripture where people whom God dealt with far more gently than they deserved because they took account of the fact that they were dust. They took account of the fact that they were just a, a passing flower or weed. Worship team, if you could come and get set here, I'm going to begin to wrap this up. So I'm going to make this a little bit more practical for you here in just a moment. A character in scripture that I'm challenged by when I think about this. And I love this guy. Is the prophet Elijah. Most of the time, Elijah was not the sort of guy that needed any coddling. Needed everybody, it's, everything's going to be okay. You're going to make it. You're going to be okay. He was used to standing up against wicked kings and powerful false prophets. And he was stubborn crowds. And he did it fearlessly. On one occasion, he challenged 850 false prophets to a contest. He says, let's prove once and for all who God, whose God is the real God. And he built an altar. And then he called on their God to send fire from heaven. Of course, nothing happened. Then Elijah did the same thing. He built his altar, called on God, and God sent this fierce fire so intense that it actually burned up the rocks of the altar. This was a victory for Elijah. But in the process of confronting the false prophets, he had him humiliated the wicked queen Jezebel, who sent word to Elijah that she was now going to kill him. Interestingly enough, this normally courageous man who just stood in the face of 850 false prophets decides, I got to run from this woman. Maybe he was physically exhausted from the battle. Maybe he was spiritually worn out. He was starving for a good meal. I mean, he was totally discouraged. And in his little whiny mood, he told God, it's over. I just want to die. In God's father heart, he knew Elijah was dust a desert flower. So God miraculously provided Elijah with food. He caused him to sleep a long sleep. When Elijah woke up, God assured him that he was not alone and he held out hope for the future. Then God set Elijah to his feet. Elijah, who had faced 850 prophets, decides I'm going to lack faith and run from one woman. Who said she wanted to kill? 850 prophets wanted him dead. He was like, cool, call down your God. Let's see what happens. I'll call my God. We'll see who shows up. That, that, that audacity and that authority and that power standing in him. And yeah, that probably took something out of him. And then in a weak moment, he made a decision to lack faith and run away. But God restored him in this gentle, loving way. I and mean, when was the last time you were in one of those situations where you threw your hands up and said, I just can't take anymore? 
When's the last time you said, I can't take one more demand from my boss? I can't take one more bad medical report. I can't take one more friend moving away. I can't take one more moral failure in the same area. I can't take my, one more morning of waking up with pain. I can't take one more sleepless night with my, with my child. I can't take another customer rejection, another cruel word from my spouse, or another unpaid bill. When, when's the last time you threw your hands up and said, I just can't take it anymore? God intimately knows you in such a way he knows exactly what you can and cannot take. And he's walking with you so when the things come around in life that you cannot take, that you lean on him, that you don't run and hide from the fight, but that you lean on him and allow him to fight the battle. In the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, Spain, one of the greatest images of a father I've ever seen. As the gun sounded for the 400 race, Great Britain's Derek Redmond knew that his lifelong dream of winning the gold medal was in view. But as he entered the back stretch, Redmond was sent sprawling by, rip in, by the ripping pain of a torn hamstring. And by an act of sheer will, he struggled to his feet in excruciating pain and began hopping toward the finish line. Suddenly, Derek's father bounded out of the stands, past the security guard. He threw his arms around his son. In a voice choked with emotion, he whispered, come on, son. Let's finish this together. The crowd cheered and wept as they watched the father, his wounded son, jerkily down the stretch and across the finish line. That moment you throw your hands up and you say I can't take anymore that's the moment that God is throwing his hands around you and he's saying my child I will finish this with you let's go so as I wrap this up my question for you this morning is are you experiencing the full measure of the heart of the Father. Are you experiencing a full measure of His grace, of His love, of His compassion, of His mercy, of His tenderness?